0: I'm Heather Fleming, founder of In-Purpose Educational Services and author of the book, My Black Friend Says.
1: And I'm Delaney Ray, the coordinator of the LEAP Institute. So what do we do now, Heather?
0: Same thing we've always done, Delaney. Keep fighting for an equitable world.
1: This time in a podcast.
0: Welcome to the Listen, Learn, Love podcast, where comfortable friends chat about uncomfortable topics. Let's do it. So, Delaney. You know what yeah. I want to talk about today?
1: What do you want to talk about today, Helen?
0: I want to talk about today the fact that right now we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Yes, we and are. We have lost over 260,000 people we to have. the coronavirus, and and that includes my a friend of mine named Cece. And, um, her nine members of her family got it, um, early on in the, in the pandemic. Um, nine members of her family got it. She passed away. Her father passed away and then their first, her first cousin. And it oh, just, it was, man. it was devastating. It was devastating for the people in Alabama that my sister has, you know, made family. It was just devastating for everyone. She, very close-knit family. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, very early on, I was like, we've got to take this seriously. We can't lose anyone else like Cece. And yet now we find ourselves in the middle of, like, I was online the other day. And here in St. Louis, there's this really big thing about restaurants being shut down and and everything and so we have public health officials and public officials that are trying to make these decisions that will save more lives and we have people that are just like eh if they die they die and I don't understand that I don't understand from the perspective of you know just other people why would you be okay you know how would you feel if it were your family members but there are just a lot of people that feel that their personal freedom outraised a greater need for for public health and safety. And I just don't understand that. And so kind of the conclusion is that we just we have a problem right now in our society. I don't know if it was, you know, it it just is always we've probably always had it and it just took different forms. But we're just really seeing it through this coronavirus. Um, We have a problem as a society with our ability to really empathize with others Yeah, you we know? really do.
1: I do see it a lot with coronavirus and people who are unwilling to wear masks, wear them correctly, stay home, do takeout. I I see exactly what you're talking about, and it is. It's shocking to think somebody can't understand that your friend was someone's daughter, maybe someone's mother, someone's sister, just like these people have daughters and sisters and mothers and uncles and fathers that could be susceptible to this coronavirus.
0: Yeah, I just don't get it. And I think that we probably will find it. We find it in a lot of situations like, you know, you'd never enter the comment section on anything. (laughs) Last weekend, we had we had a young lady who was Made history as the first woman to start in a, yes. a college football game. You know, a televised college football Absolutely. game.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: she was a kicker for Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. I think you know that. I don't know much about the foosball, but yeah, I don't know, do football. But
1: that was exciting. Yeah, I don't do
0: it either. But it was. It was very exciting until you started reading the comments, and it mm-hmm. was horrifying. To see what people were saying about, like, threatening violence. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they hope that she is sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. multiple times in the locker room. Because
1: she dares to enter into into a male realm. Correct, that is not considered Mm -hmm. her space to be in.
0: I I just, I don't. Well, I'll tell you another
1: place where I see this lack of empathy, and that is. When we look at the recent um, and some not so recent killings of unarmed black people
0: oh, and,
1: yeah. you know, the subsequent actions of others who are speaking out, who are so upset, who are just crying to be heard. I personally have been very surprised at some of the posts I've seen people that I consider to be kind and loving people but who will post publicly how angry they are and how upset they are at looting or when property is damaged during some of these protests and they, you know will speak out and make public statements about how much they condemn any property damage that happens yet have not spoken out about the deaths that have prompted um these protests in the first place and this isn't a new thing you know these these killings of unarmed black people isn't new and what i find really shocking about it is for me it doesn't take much thought at all to think about how i would feel if my daughter was sleeping in her bed and was gunned down by people that are trained to protect us that are trained to keep the peace Exactly. And then to, here's the thing is I've never heard anybody say more property damage, more looting. Like that's not something that I hear anybody speaking out in favor of. So I'm, I guess I'm shocked to hear people who think it's so worth their effort to condemn it, but they're not taking action or speaking up or condemning these deaths. And if that was their child, if that was their child that was pulled over for a headlight out, and then the then a the police officer found something scary or interesting and
0: shot their child in the street, they would burn the city down. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um. You know, and it's it's so much because in the end, one of the things that we have to always remember in America is that the rights that these same people enjoy, that they are, you know, that they enjoy as as their privilege or whatever. We obtain those rights by violence, you, um, looting and rioting. You know, what was the Boston Tea Party? Correct. Yeah. And even when it comes
1: to women's suffrage and women's you know,
0: suffrage, it was not the achieved. right to vote.
1: And that was only 100 years ago. And there was protesting, there were arrests, there were, you know, acting out in ways that were considered absolutely, absolutely unacceptable, embarrassing. When
0: when we look at the labor movement,
1: mm. that was one mm-hmm. thing like,
0: I saw this great post by a gentleman. And he's like, look, I'm a I'm a 53 year old white guy. I think that's how old he said he was. But, you know, I'm this um, white guy. I'm, I'm totally pro-union. And because I'm totally pro-union, I have to be pro-Black Lives Matter. And he went on to explain that he can't concentrate on any of the actions of a few, because that's the that's another thing to really stress the actions of a few.
1: And sometimes not even people who are actually invested in or there because of the movement, but are agitators or are just using this as an excuse to play out their vigilante fantasies.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, but this gentleman just brings up the point that, you know, how can I condemn a movement that's using the same playbook or that might have some of the same elements of a movement that I I wholeheartedly support it? Because if we look back at how unions and, and the labor movement went down, guess what? There was a lot Mm -hmm. of rioting. There was a lot of protesting. There was a lot of things going on. And so that that's the other part that I sometimes struggle with is how is it that you can sit and applaud these actions, but you can't applaud other actions. And so that brings me because, of course, as I started thinking about this subject, did a little research. Okay. And so let me tell you what I learned. Mm hmm. First thing is that this is, this phenomenon is what's called the empathy gap.
1: I like that. The empathy yes.
0: gap. The empathy gap. And basically, it's, it's when people fail to understand different perspectives. There's, there's actually an article titled The Empathy Gap, Why People Fail to Understand Different Perspectives. And they define it as, um, when people are in a certain mental state, so they're happy or angry or whatever, and as a result, they struggle to understand the perspective or predict the actions of someone who is in a different mental state, whether mm. that person is their future self or if that person is someone else. And so um that's pretty much it. You know, like we look at this. Hey, we're in a good space. We like what's going on in our society. We don't understand why you're upset. Right. And I. I've heard that before. I've heard from people that it's like, here are the things that concern me. And this woman came onto one of my posts on Facebook and was like, what's wrong with you people now? Mm. Of course, you people, meaning you black people, that was a whole other mm-hmm. topic, but it just is one of those things where she, because she has a, a different perspective, she cannot understand our perspective. And so we see that in a lot of different situations. I I came across an article that gave some great examples. Like for instance, we see in our society, they they did surveys and I wish I would have saved that article, but they did surveys and they found that white communities were 52 times more likely to keep um, opioids fully stocked than black communities were. And that is because of the fact that honestly, there are even healthcare professionals that believe that black people feel less pain or feel pain differently Mm -hmm. than white people. That is a sign of the empathy gap. And so I came across another really great article that talked about it. It's, It's called the brain's empathy gap. And basically neuroscientists have been using an MRI, a, a specialized type of MRI to map the brain's pathways
1: mm-hmm. during
0: certain things. And so they've been mapping, like, what is the pathway that the brain uses when something, you know, when it needs to activate empathy? Well, mm-hmm. in particular, this was really interesting to me. Um, there is a neuroscientist, cognitive neuroscientist at MIT named Dr. Emile Bruno. Um, at least he was There in 2015, but he has spent at least the last 10 years or so studying conflicts around the world. And so it's conflicts such as Roma versus non-Roma people in um, countries like Hungary and the Czech Republic. He studied the Israelis and Palestinians in Israel and the West Bank. He has studied Mexican immigrants and Americans along the um, Arizona border. He worked with Protestants versus Catholics. In Ireland. And he even studied Democrats versus Republicans in the U.S. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the problem is these particular groups consider each other enemies. Right. And he developed a theory that that basically when we begin considering someone an enemy, our mind mm-hmm. generates this empathy gap. So basically our mind gives us permission to not care about our enemy. And it puts these empathy signals that are in our brains, it it mutes them basically. And it prevents Mm -hmm. us from putting ourselves in our perceived enemy's shoes. And so that ended up, you you brought up a great thing. You talked about people that you would think of as loving and kind and caring that couldn't do that. That's because that's this, this phenomenon happening. What he found is it had nothing to do with how empathetic a person is by nature. Mm -hmm. It had everything to do with who these people, who they perceived as their enemy. So the most empathetic person in the world, you and I have the ability to turn it off for anyone that we think of as an enemy. Right. Right. Is that not is that not interesting to think about?
1: It is. And, you know, that what you just what you talked about, that that the mind turning it off made me think about um having the opioids in the house. You know, one of the things I hear people say is, well, that couldn't happen to them. And they don't they don't think it's a racial issue. They say, oh, well, you know, that wouldn't happen in there to my child. My child wouldn't do that. But what they're not realizing is some of these same people you know, have kids that have made poor decisions, whether it came to drinking and driving or trying drugs, but they live in an area that's not over policed because they have white children. Their children aren't being pulled over. Their cars aren't being searched. So they're not putting, they're not able to put themselves in the shoes of saying, this could happen to my child. And the reason it's not is because of my skin color. It's just, well, those are criminals. They had drugs, which kind of, sets that up as this enemy you're talking about. Well, that's a that's a bad person who doesn't abide by the law. Well, most of us at some point or another <laughs> don't abide by the, law. the law.
0: We've broken I the law.
1: I, we have. I have yeah. I mean, We We do. We break the law and we think it's okay when we're doing it because we're just in a hurry to get home. You know, what What I'm going to right. know.
0: Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Well, you know, I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, I think about all the time when you when you talked about the and we've talked about our sons, our your son, my oldest son. My oldest son is tall. He's you know stocky. He is just he's so handsome too. I must say that he is. Um, Jordan is very handsome. Thank you. But you know, here is a kid that doesn't drink, doesn't do any drugs. He has i think he maybe has gone to a club once in his mm-hmm. entire life and that's because he took a friend of his who wanted to go to a Post Malone concert and couldn't drive but here's this kid that just is a good good kid doesn't bother anybody etc but i am still terrified for him out in public because what if they look at them look at him the same way they looked at Mike Brown
1: the perception of a large black man.
0: Exactly. And mm-hmm. then the next thing is that we see this character assassination that happens every time we, these, these, um, we have these victims of um, police violence, black victims of police violence. And so it just, it terrifies me. But at the same time, it's like you said, why can't I get people to understand that even if my son doesn't look like their son. I still have the same worries and concerns and hopes and dreams and everything. And I love my son just as fiercely as they do. So even if
1: your son were to have made a mistake, even if he even had if he he was dabbled with, with alcohol, I'm going to tell you uh, uh, when Delaney broke the law recently. Uh-huh. I try to follow the rules because of coronavirus. So I was going to yes, meet yes. a couple of friends outdoors, and we were going mm-hmm. to sit at least six feet apart and have a little happy hour. And I decided to make a mixed drink. I don't exactly remember what it was. I think it was vodka. So I put it mm-hmm. in one of those turvis tumblers, and I put it in the cup holder of my car, and I drove 10 minutes to my friend's house. And when I got there, I thought, well, that's against the law. I just had it an open. That is against the
0: law. Delaney,
1: I didn't drink it on the way. No. But what if? What if I hid? What bumped, if you tom- got pulled the- over? What if I got pulled over? The cup fell over. It sloshed the drink around. It smelled bad. What if I got pulled over? I'll tell you what. If I, for starters, there's not a whole lot of policing in my neighborhood. It's a predominantly white area. There's very little policing. If I got pulled over. I probably would have had to answer whatever questions. I truly can't imagine that I my car would have been searched that anybody would have even asked what was in my turbis tumbler. And that is privilege. You know, mm-hmm. that is just because I'm not black and and where I live. But, but that doesn't Here's mean, a good question
0: for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you are even though you are not black, you still present. Even though you're biracial, you still present as Hispanic. As a Hispanic woman. As a, as a Hispanic woman. And so. so
1: I, I do understand. I think I get a little bit of a pass because, well, I'm just going to be honest with you. There is, there, it, Hispanic women aren't threatening, considered threatening. You know, when we talk about the different biases that people have, I don't feel that Hispanic women fall in the, the threatening violent or criminal category
0: that that other others perceive of african-american men or african-american women i i I understand that that, but i still am like is there still just a little bit of pushback that you get
1: i worry more about my son So Mm -hmm. I'm biracial. My my husband, my father's very white. My husband's very white. But my son, he inherited his hair straight from my mother. He has jet black hair. It's It's textured and it's curly and it's down past his shoulders. And he also, like your son, is a big guy. And I worry a little more about him because I feel like his appearance of otherness is enough Mm -hmm. to raise more suspicion being a young man and mm-hmm. maybe i'm being naive that i don't worry so much about myself do i that doesn't mean i necessarily think that i'm getting the same privilege that i would if i presented as white mhm but i i don't get the impression that i am perceived in in a way that is at risk of being seen as criminal or or intimidating
0: i understand Understand. So, what are we gonna do about this, Delaney? What are we gonna do?
1: Yeah, we um, we need to solve this problem within this 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 podcast. I fully expect us to to <laughs> have, have this sorted out. I do too. I like, do I'm too. Going, we can, I'm gonna lick we the seal solve. on this envelope and mail it. <laughs> So you tell me, Heather, well, what are we going to do?
0: Here's the first thing that I found out.
1: Yes, tell me. Is
0: that if we're going to close the empathy gap, it is not going to be about teaching people to be nicer to one another. But um, that seems
1: like it should be about teaching people to be nicer to one another. It
0: should be about teaching people to be nicer to one another But here's the thing is that, again, that's because we're starting with the assumption that people don't know how to be nice to one another. That's not the problem. And these are nice people. Mm. These are nice people. These are people that perceive themselves as nice people. And And so here's the thing. What we really have to teach is how teach them is how to stop seeing others as the enemy. Okay. now that is harder work. Because I can teach my I can teach anyone to be nice to one another, to be nice to each other. But Mm -hmm. how do I when we're in such a charged atmosphere and society right now, when we have uh, oppositional forces that have been against one another for hundreds of years, how do you get them to stop viewing people as the enemy? And that's the work that we need to do. um I will say this. I always think uh, when I think about stuff like this, I think about the story of Derek Black. Have you ever heard of Derek Black? Refresh my memory. Well, Derek Black was this guy that was raised in the white supremacist movement his His godfather is actually david David Duke. His wow. father is a big star. In the um, white supremacist movement, he um, runs a like radio station show type thing down in Florida that mm-hmm. is for basically for the white nationalist movement. And he had raised they were raising um Derek Black to be like a star in the movement. And so he was when he was, you know, six, 15, 16, 17, he had his own radio show where he spouted like, you know, a lot of these beliefs, et cetera. Well, what happened he turns 18, he ended up actually winning like a political office, but he didn't serve it, serve in it. I guess that he was pretty much just doing it for, you know, to prove a point. Um, but he ended up deciding that he wanted to go to college um, to study. I think it was German history or the German language. But um, bottom line is, this program that he wanted to join, the only school that had it was a liberal school down in Florida. Down in Florida. Okay. And so he goes ahead and he goes to the liberal school, but he keeps under wrap uh, under wraps that he is. Um, this big star in the white nationalist movement. Probably and was. he starts going to school. Yeah. And so he starts going to school. Well, he ends up doing a, a study abroad semester in Germany. And mm-hmm. while he is there in Germany on their school message board, someone outs him. Ooh. Okay. And so uh, imagine is this liberal school. Mm-hmm. And they just found out that one of the brightest stars of the white nationalist movement is a student at their school. So of course they're demanding that he gets kicked out. they all of this stuff. He's still studying abroad. Well, he, when he gets back, there was a gentleman, and I forget the gentleman's name off the top of my head, but he was a Jewish man, and he would have Friday nights
1: Shabbat. Shabbat
0: thank you. Mm-hmm. He would have. They would have Friday night Shabbat. And, you know, all of their friends would come together, relax, laugh, talk. Well, just off the cuff, this guy sees Derek Black. And um, once he returns from Germany and he invites him. Mm. And to their surprise, Derek shows up with a wow. couple of bottles of wine. OK. And they just sit and they talk. Oh. And they listen to one another. And then after that, they look up and the next Friday, he comes back again. And by the time they're done, they developed a very close relationship that doesn't ignore what Derek has said, but basically allows them, allows Derek to start seeing them as the enemy and allows them to not see Derek as the enemy. And the result is that Derek ended up leaving the white nationalist movement and now works in order to, you know, help others to understand this mentality and to move away from that movement as well. Of course, it caused a rift with his father, but he that's the work that he continues to do. If you ever get a chance, it's this excellent story in The New York Times about it and about him and, and, you know, just what he did. But that's the thing about it is that I bet you if other white nas- nationalists knew Derek before his conversion, they probably would have said he's a nice guy. Right. And right. the reality is that even his father, like I was listening to some of the things that his father has said in interviews and they don't even believe that, you know, this is any big deal. They, they, are like, no, we're nice people. We're not we're not gonna be mean to black people. We're not doing this and not realizing that even in the words that they say there's there's a certain um violence that they're still doing no matter what. But even some of these people don't perceive themselves as being mean. And so that empathy gap is there and it's an operation and it's an operation because here you have an individual that Like I said, they see other people, they see Jews, they see African-Americans, they see Muslims and other brown people as the enemy and the enemy that is threatening their livelihoods, the enemy that is threatening their their way of life, their culture, uh, their positions of power, their ability to earn money and meet with success. And so if you see if that's what you feel. Yes, these people all feel like the enemy. They feel like a threat to you. But and in I the story even of Derek Black, mm-hmm. I would even
1: I would even challenge that word enemy a little bit. I would I would go as far as to say that there's a lot of people who would never consciously admit that they see minority people as enemies.
0: Oh, yeah. No, they wouldn't. But that's part of their possession of empathy.
1: Correct. That's part of their, they, their
0: perception of themselves they, as empathetic people. They're they not my enemy. Them. No, they're not my enemy,
1: but they see them as other. There is still a deep mistrust in there. If that, yeah. you know, if Philandro Castell was shot, he clearly was doing something wrong. He clearly brought it upon himself. And, you know, as opposed to like in this situation, understanding that this is a, another man, just a, a man, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of skin color, this is a man who was pulled over and was shot in front of a child.
0: In front of a child. While while the police officer, who was supposedly trained to maintain calm in this situation, while he's freaking out, and yet Philando Castile's girlfriend is sitting there having to remain calm so that she herself doesn't get shot. In and um, a that was just an, in front of her child. Mm-hmm. And that is just uh, incredible. So how do we solve this, Delaney? One of the things is that, um, like I said, the first thing is giving people an opportunity to kind of meet the enemy. And so if you I don't know if you've ever been I don't think you've ever been to any of my um come to the table events, of course the pandemic shut those down. But I used to have this event that I would do where it would be like a full buffet. We'll never do buffets again after the yeah, pandemic. I don't but... ever want to eat, breathe, no, sneeze. No, I never want to eat a buffet. Breathed on, sneezed ever on again. food ever again. Nothing ever again. But we would have this whole variety of foods from different ethnicities and countries, et cetera, and, you know, backgrounds. And it would just be wonderful. But I, we would also give people an opportunity just to mix it up and get to know one another, and so people of different races and ethnicities and religions and hopefully religion and all yeah, these, yeah, religions and all these differences they came together into the room and they just sat down and talked and had the opportunity to get to know one another and to get a different perspective, so it's like I wish we could do that on a wider scale, like. Can we just set up a big table and put the universal healer in the middle of the table? And that's tacos, Delaney tacos. So if anything,
1: if anything can cure the world, it's tacos. So I was trying to think when you were saying we need to spend time with the enemy, opportunities to meet the enemy, was making a mental list of the enemy. And on my list, first was going to be people that say you can't listen to Christmas music as of November 1st. I need to meet and sit down with those people <laughs> and I would have to put on their people that don't like tacos. That,
0: that, those might, those might be the enemy. I am enemies. concerned about those people. I am, I, might, I am concerned about those people. I need to understand dab, them better. Right.
1: Yeah. Those would be, yeah. Okay. Jokes aside, I do agree. And I think some of us seek out opportunity to really get to know the people that we would put in the categories in the box of others. How do Mm -hmm. we encourage everyone to meet, spend time with, um, get to know whoever is their others?
0: Well, unfortunately, Delaney had bad news. This is the Uh reason why we will not be able to solve this problem in this one episode. Okay. It may take Mm. three or four episodes. And tacos. And tacos. But the part of the problem is that we live in a society that encourages, in a lot of ways, um, separatism. If you think about it, and one of the things that that you find with white flight and some of the other things, there are people that are able to go through their entire day without experiencing anyone that doesn't look like them, think like them, worship like them. Like you think about some of the communities that even some of our friends live in or, or you know, the community that you live in. The community that I
1: live in. Absolutely.
0: Where, you know, you have a person that can go for a jog in their neighborhood, not see another person of color. They can Mm -hmm. then come home, take a shower, get ready, go to work, go to a job where everyone else still looks like them. Mm -hmm. Then they can leave leave a job, stop by the pharmacy, stop by the grocery store, stop by, you know, their kids' soccer practice to pick them up, whatever it is, and still never have any in-depth interactions with people that look differently, worship differently, you know, think differently than they do. And so Correct. that ends up being a problem because if those people are comfortable, they don't want to then be placed in a in a situation that's uncomfortable and, and as you know, you know, from our, my six, um, um, agreements for productive conversations about race, one of the big ones is get comfortable with being uncomfortable. This stuff is hard. All it is of hard. This, it's hard. And mistakes, and mistakes so, get made. Exactly. And so if you have a person that is comfortable in their environment and they have no need whatsoever to make any type of, of substantive changes, Then they're not. And it is going to be hard to get those people. So what we try to do, you know, within purpose is that we get the people that we can and then we give them all of the tools and skills that they need. So then now they can go and get the people that we can't get. They can go and and pull in and talk to and start working on that auntie. That has always lived a very um, homogenous experience Uh, or the, the uncle, the cousin, whoever it may be that has always because they can appeal to their empathy in a way that because we might be seen as other in a way that maybe we wouldn't be able to. So we do we have to do that work of having them get to know one another. But you also can do the work by helping people make empathetic connections with their own memories. Mm, and that's a good one. That, that requires a lot of work, but, and it also requires, you knowing the person, because one of the things that I've, you know, if I know a person I can say, well, you know what, do you remember that time we were in the store and this is, and this happened take, mm-hmm. take what you felt at that moment and mm-hmm. think about the fact that this might be how this person is feeling because I know that person. And so that ends up being one of those strategies that is truly person to person. And what we're ultimately trying to do to put it bigger picture, we, we change hearts and minds, but we change hearts and minds for the purpose of enlisting help to change systems. The ultimate thing that we need to do is to change systems because that's the other thing that is going to help with the empathy gap. When we get to a point where our systems don't automatically make, you know, sides, create sides, then we will, because there's no reason that police and black citizens should feel that they're on two different sides.
1: You're right. And there's no reason that people should feel like if they wear a mask in public, they're making a political statement or they're choosing a side. It should simply be they are making the conscientious choice to protect the people around them and themselves. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, hey, Heather, are you Heather sure, anymore? are you sure we didn't solve
0: all of the problems? Um. Let's do this. Let's check back with a few people and see if they still have problems with empathy when we get done. Okay. All right. That felt pretty good to me. <laughs> You're my favorite. No, you're my favorite. Well, I love this chat. It was good talking to you. And I'll talk to you next time. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can support us on Patreon by looking for the Listen, Learn, Love podcast or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at InPurposeES, that is I-N-Purpose-E-S. You can also follow us on Twitter at InPurposeEA or visit our website at www.InPurposeEA.com. Heather, this was great. Do you want to do it again next week? I sure do, Delaney. Awesome. Talk to you then. Bye.